וגם אני פתאום Welcome back to another episode. This is your host, Rabbi Hillel Kappenstein, Director of the Columbus Community Kollel. And it's a great honor and privilege to welcome all of you back to our next episode featuring Rabbi Shimon Russell. Rabbi Russell is an incredible, incredible person. He, not only is he a mental health professional, he's a Talmud Chacham. He just wrote a best-selling book um, that's won secular awards already. Um, and we get to discuss a whole... A whole wide range of different topics you know first off we get to discuss what it was like to go into the field of mental health in an age where there weren't many from therapists around um, we discuss the whole OTD phenomenon otherwise known as going off the derech people from from families leaving the derech and what contributes to that what maybe causes that we also get to discuss how to parent when things are normal and when things are not We also discuss abuse, molestation, and what the negative effects of that may be. We discuss hatsnei halachas, what it means to be going in the ways of the Torah in a modest way, with sneas, with modesty. We also discuss what does one know, how does one know if they're dealing with choli hanefesh or midos ros, with mental health issues or just bad character traits? How do we know the difference? And a lot more things that we discuss on this episode, so stay tuned for that. To sponsor a Kolot episode, email me sponsorkolot at gmail.com. Again, that is sponsorkolot at gmail.com. This episode's sponsor is Restart. Restart is a career development platform which offers complimentary access to log in and work with live career advisors who will help find meaningful employment opportunities that match what you are looking for. To learn more, visit www.joinrestart.com. Once again, www.joinrestart.com and learn about your employment opportunities today. And without any further ado, allow me to tell you about our guest. Rabbi Shimon Russell is a psychotherapist in private practice in Yerushalayim. In 2014, together with his wife, he made Aliyah from Lakewood, where he lived and practiced for over 25 years. Born in England, he studied for five years in yeshivas in Eretz Yisrael before moving to Lakewood and joining the kollel of Beth Medrash Gavoa. He continued his studies in Beth Medrash Gavoa, receiving smicha from the late Rosh Yeshiva Harav Shneer Cutler. Subsequently, he studied for a master's degree in clinical social work. Completing his training at the Clinical Externship Program of the Ackerman Institute for Family Therapy in New York. His primary expertise is in marriage, struggling adolescents, and teens, and treatment of abuse. Rabbi Shimon Russell, thank you so much for joining Kolot. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here, and thank you for inviting me. So, please tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, from childhood becoming religious, all the way until Rav Shach's advice to go into the field of mental health. So that would take a book. It would take hours on its own. But just the quick biographical search. Sure. So after the war, my father, Al Sham, was, we grew up in England. He was drafted into the British Army by force. My mother was forced out of London during the Blitz of London. In, and lived with Goim during her teenage years. By the end of the war, neither of them were particularly from. But they had the great insight and foresight to send my brothers and I to Talmud Torah. So where we lived in South London, there were no Jewish schools, but there was Talmud Torah after school. And they sent us. And uh, oddly enough, we're amazing the that both my brothers and I took it seriously. Uh, by the time I was 18, finished high school, I had gone to Yeshiva, to Eretz Yisrael. I was already Shomri Shabbos before my bar mitzvah, and the whole family eventually returned. In fact, I was Lechavit, my bar mitzvah. I was Mekavah Shabbos. I was 12 and a half. Um, then on went to Yeshiva, and things just happened rapidly. It was kind of shocking. Uh, I ended up in BMG. It was a marvelous, amazing experience. I can't even tell you. I felt out of place, but nevertheless, just did my best and The Olam there was so amazing, so receptive and embracing. And Kainahara, I grew. During my 
yeshiva years, I learned in Yeshiva Sanegev, Azata, in Eretz for three years. And there I would frequently go with my Shailas to Rav Shach and to the Stiplegon, Zichon Levracha. They were the two places I would go all the time with Shailas. So I was very not there. Later on in BMG, I was in Koyal, and um, an episode happened. It was a very sad episode that a younger man took his life. He sat two seats away from me. And for six months prior to it happening, I saw in his eyes something bothered me very, very much about him. I tried to alert everyone. There were no mental health professionals in Lakewood then, zero, nothing. And um, after it happened, I had intended a career in Chinuch. Uh, my chaverim noticed that I had noticed this and was talking about this all the time. And I was good at counseling. You know, I was uh, just naturally attuned to people. And the word went out from some of my chaverim, maybe you should do mental health. Maybe, you know, we need people in this field. This was a big shock to the system. In the end, uh, I was pushed by one of my good chaverim, he's a big rov, to go and ask Rav Shach what he thought. It wasn't the Rav Shach plucked me out of BMG to be a therapist. I went to Rav Shach, intending to be in Chinuch, being in Koyal, and I thought he'd knock it out of me. Quite frankly, I thought he would just like, go back to Koyal, go learn. I had good jobs in Chinuch offered to me already. And the exact opposite happened. It was astonishing. I told him I wanted to be in Avedis HaKodesh. Avedis HaKodesh, that, that was my, I wanted my life there. And Rav Shach said to me, Heint, dos is Avedis HaKodesh. Mental health is Avodah Sakaidish. And he was very, very, very mechazik me and um, basically got me to give my word that I would do it. And afterwards, he was very helpful to me. You know, uh, later, really soon after that, Shach wasn't really well anymore and you couldn't contact him. But I got him right at the end where he was able to give me the chizuk and, I, and the, the real chizuk to do it. In fact, he walked out into the street with me. And wait, I had a car coming for me, and he walked down to the street holding my arm, being mechazik me, insisting that I would do it, and I did, and uh, the rest is history. Wow. Um, and it's amazing how things have changed since then, how many mental health professionals there are <laughs> in Lakewood since then. Quite a turn, and uh, nice to hear that we're interviewing someone who may have pioneered that and where the advice came from. Can you share with us some of the early issues you started working on? Well, I, I did something that no one should do anymore, and I recommend to everyone not to. I did everything. I did absolutely anything that came my way. I had no clue what I was doing. I was feeling my way. I was very alone. There was actually one other person, a lady, um, Mrs. Cohen. She was part-time, I think, at that time. I believe I was the first full-time professional in Lakewood, mental health professional, um, I had no clue what I was doing. I was really honestly feeling my way, taking everything and anything. I went to workshop upon workshop, training upon training for the next 10 years. I just did as much training as I could, trying to feel out what was I good at. What, what, what did I feel connected to, you know, instead of doing, and I shrunk over the years. I kept shrinking what I was willing to say I'm good at and what I was willing to actually deal with. Today, I tell young professionals, you have to specialize. I mean, there's so much room, specialize, find something that you can really become expert, really expert in. You know, that's not what, that's not how I started. It wasn't possible. But I did end up eventually, um, you know, finding one area of expertise or one or two anyway. And can you explain to our listeners the OTD phenomenon, uh, what that is, um, what circles that's in, and your personal story learning the issue? Well, the OTD phenomena, I'll say like this, my first 10 years, we didn't really know much about it. Uh, but we were seeing, we were beginning to see more and more kids struggling and going off. Uh, no one really understood it yet. Most people assumed it was a dysfunctional homes, poor parenting. Um, somewhere around late, mid to late 1999, the Jewish Observer, which was, by the way, the only magazine in those days, was the only one that existed, I think. Uh, oh, oh, perhaps there were others. But as far as I know, it was the only mainstream magazine I remember from, that I ever got. And the Observer published an article from a very leading mechanic. Uh, they used to bring out like a, a gray box to highlight 
you know, an important point. And they, one of the gray box, it was about the off the derech struggling teens. And, and they, the box said that the overwhelming consensus of orthodox mental health professionals was that children going off the derech were coming from dysfunctional homes. Now, for the first time, I was very quiet till then, but this caught my eye and it really troubled me. It troubled me for two reasons. I knew it was wrong, but it deeply troubled me. Number one, because when we shame parents publicly, when we make parents and the community believe a rhetoric, a language, that parents are the cause of kids going off, well, then all parents are shamed of allowing their child out the house, dressed a certain way, perhaps acting a certain way, will desperately attempt to micromanage the life of their child before they walk out of the house because they don't want to be shamed publicly. That battle will then actually grease the rails of pushing kids off the dirt. It made it worse. That rhetoric wasn't true, and it made it worse. It was incredibly dangerous. I also knew it wasn't true because our oldest daughter at that time had started struggling and was clearly going off the derech. And we, my wife and I knew we were a very highly functional home. We were healthy. We loved each other. We loved our kids. And we couldn't understand at all how and why this was happening, what this was about. So I knew it personally. I knew it professionally. And it really troubled me. So I wrote with a colleague of mine together. We wrote to the Jewish Observer a rebuttal to that article. The Jewish Observer published our letter and apparently got the response was so overwhelming in favor that they asked us to help put together an edition which came out the famous Jewish Observer of November 1999 that actually had the entire edition was on Kids on the Fringe and it was reprinted twice. It was always reprinted a second time because they ran out of copies. It never happened before. And suddenly the phenomena of OTD had arrived. It was now a subject that we talked about. Um, following that, I became the director of our place, the drop-in center in Brooklyn for struggling teens. I was the clinical director there for about 10 years. And it was during that time that together with the mentors, the wonderful heroes, these amazing people who were working there, we together sat and kind of tried desperately to work out what works and what doesn't and what's, what is this really about um, and we did a lot of mentor training and a lot of self-training and self-awareness to understand really the truth of what was happening, what was it really about. And you mentioned that you had a daughter struggling with this as well. Are you comfortable sharing maybe some of the lessons that you learned or some of the low points <laughs> and how you got through with all of that? Okay, so again, you're asking me, this is like a 10-hour a lecture, if you some of the lessons, just some. some. Look, the, <laughs> the the more our, our eldest daughter struggled the, the um we slowly realized as i tried to help her through the years and do what we could we went from school to school you know people tried they were really caring who tried to reach out to her but it just got worse and worse and worse eventually i actually opened a school for her in Israel a post-seminary, she she was kicked out for the last program, and she asked me, Ty, you know what I need. Could you open a program for me? I thought it was mad. I was in Lakewood, but I wired her $10,000, uh, Western Union, and I told her, go rent an apartment. There were two other girls, three of maybe, and we started a program that ran for about 10 years, a post-seminary program that really helped these kids get their lives back and and put their lives together. It was remarkable, a place called Tikva. Remarkable, we amazing, amazing staff, and I would fly in regularly and try and help them. The thing I realized that was happening was that they were affecting each other. I had other children who had similar types of learning issues and struggles, and they they just couldn't make it in the system. As bad as they tried, they couldn't. And um, it was a real struggle realizing this was happening with you know a number of our children, and we couldn't stop it. That was the low point to realize that it wasn't going to be reversed. We weren't going to actually find some magic therapist or Rav or, you know, Balashkofa or Makarov, you know, anyone, anywhere who had this magic pill 
or this amazing insight or the wisdom of the ages that they could just sit down with a 15, 16 year old teenager who was angry and struggling and say something to them that would change their lives. Like this didn't exist. And that was the most painful awareness to realize this was not going to happen. And I think that, you know, what happened because of that is that my wife and I came to terms with the fact that this was our new life. This was our new norm. We were, we were going to give up the picture and the image of the type of home that we fantasized about when we got married, that when we held those babies, we thought this was going to be the Torah de Kishivisha home and the type of nachas we were looking for. And we had to give that up. And we got enormous, enormous, enormous nachas in different directions, in other ways. Trust me, just we wouldn't trade what we went through for a, a more conventional life that we had anticipated. But it was accepting the new norm, that we had a new life's purpose. And that new life's purpose, actually, I had no idea at the time, would eventually flourish and magnify into the place I find myself today, you know, where I'm embarrassed to say how many people, you know, I'm connected with and listen to the drushes through Keshe and and a, a, a machazik from it, and the book, the success of the book, it's just mind-boggling. And it all came from that, but it was accepting. Kodesh Baruch Hu had his own plan. As my Rebbe, Mashkir, he said to me one time, and, he, and we were close enough that he could say this to me, but he said to me, Shimon, he said, I have to tell you the truth. If I was the Rabbi Nishalaylam, I wouldn't waste my time giving you the regular kids. I'd only giving you, give you the struggling ones. And, and I, I took it well because I knew it was true. And, and Kodesh Baruch was in charge. And, and he has his plan for all of us. It was accepting that plan and not our plan that really freed us. So we went from the worst recognition, we weren't going to turn this off, to actually the amazing, amazing embracing of a new life that Kodesh Baruch was giving us that was taking us to a different place. That was the downs and the ups. So it wasn't a magical response from uh, a Rav, a therapist. You left out in the Kobol, but, uh, you yeah. know. <laughs> uh, we did that too. We did that. Trust me. I did that too. We did everything. And, and no one had it. And it was, you know, it sunk into me after a while, I realized, because it's not there, because there isn't one. And uh, that really set me free. Plus the Jewish Observer experience. You know, I was involved with Nefesh in the early days, uh, Nefesh International, and we ran some together with a dear colleague, uh, Dr. Norm Blumenthal. We ran three or four, I forget now, uh, really important cutting edge conferences, trying to work out what was the real issues, like what was really happening. Because uh, as you know, and uh, just guesswork and blaming parents clearly wasn't working. And uh, and we wanted to, you know, we wanted to really kind of research it and examine it. So I did a lot of research, a lot of, you know, invested my life and effort into trying to understand what's really happening. So one last personal question, then we move on more broadly. Um, what what was your turning point? Like, what was like, okay, we have to change our approach. What did it for you? It wasn't working. You know, I have, a, I, I ask my clients frequently, you know, when they tell me what they're doing and how they're dealing with life, and they get very upset that, you know, the, I'm, I'm doing everything I'm told to do, and they get very upset about it. So I, I usually lean into that question with tremendous empathy and ask people, so how's that working for you? You know, if we're repeating the same things and it's not working, so then we have to ask ourselves, well, maybe then we're doing the wrong thing. And really that's what it taught me was the ability to let go and understand that Svei Petch, I was told, I was told by well-meaning, I truly mean this, well-meaning Mechanchim, you know, Shimon, you just need to give Svei Petch, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you know, give them a good whack. They gotta know your kids, they gotta know. And, and sadly and regretfully in the early years, I probably tried that and very, very quickly saw how bad that works. So, I was able just to say to myself, well, let me just strike out everything that doesn't work. And then let's try and take a look at maybe what does work. And it was just, that was the changing point to recognize there was no conventional wisdom anywhere 
at all that was helping us with struggling teens. Nothing. Mm-hmm. So now we have to look for something new. So the conventional wisdom of dysfunctional homes did not uh, turn out to be correct. No. Can you no. share with us some of the um, what you've seen from your experience? And I know your area of work, um, your expertise is within the Haredi community. But within that, can you share with us some of the reasons why you think people leave, go off the derech? Well, the re- all the research I've done, <clears throat> I did significant significant research over the years, both, you know, with my client base and then, you know, outside because of my work, I get exposed to different, you know, communities and people in talks and other places. I meet a lot of people. Um, what I've concluded is the underlying reality of, of the derech is trauma. Trauma, see the word trauma, if you take the word trauma, just for layman's terms, the word trauma really translates. If it was Yiddish, Hebrew, or Aramaic, we'd have to teach it in English. So the word trauma means disconnect. Kodesh Baruch Hu made a person in a way that if you experience something traumatic, you disconnect from that. You don't want to stay around it. If it's life-threatening or it's horrific, you disconnect. You come away from that because it hurts you so bad. So what we recognized early on is that there were really three types of trauma affecting kids. And the underlying issue was the trauma. All the rest of the, shall we say, you know, the word in old English is shenanigans, the stuff they got up to, you know, afterwards, whether it was the drugs to the internet, to the boyfriends and the girlfriends, all that stuff is secondary. That's what they do afterwards. But that's not the cause. That's, that's what they do to deal with their pain and their hurt so they can survive and, and live and not die. The real issue was trauma. Um, we discovered it in three areas. Sexual trauma, molestation, and sexual child abuse seem to account for the vast majority of kids going off. We know that now we know and people, you know, when I first said this, people got very mad with me about it because it just seemed outrageous. But today it's been, you know, I've been vindicated and it's been validated many times that we're looking at a very high number of kids in our community who unfortunately experience, experience sexual child abuse. And uh, that's something that we have to face and we are facing. And Baruch Hashem, there's a lot of people involved now trying to help deal with this. There are those from that group who shut down their feelings and emotions completely only to have to deal with it when they get married, which is like a real crisis and problem. Like You can't escape from it. Nobody escapes. You can't be sexually abused and just go on life like nothing happened, right? Unless, of course, you come from one of those very, very unique, resilient homes that maybe we'll talk about later. But for the vast majority of people, you either shut it down and have to deal with it in your marriage, which is a disaster, or you go off the derech. Because one of the pillars of the from world is Hatsnei Alechas. And it's one of the things that's bashed into kids' heads during those teenage years. Appropriately so, they're reinforced, both boys and girls, in Hatsnei Alechas and covering your body and Shmir Sinayim and Shmir Sigur. It's very much, it's not something that we do. It's, it's who we are. You know, it's not a religious like thing you do, like shaking a lulav is something you do. You, you're not a lulav. You shake one, right? The Hatsnei Leches isn't something you do. It's who you are. It's part of the fabric of the essence of a human being. So when that's shaken and you need to, you're in a world that says, if you're aware of yourself in this way, then you're bad. You're like a guy. There's something wrong with you. So when, when you hear those messages repeated, you just need to get away from those messages. So unconsciously that drags these kids and sometimes quite consciously off the derech. The second most common trauma is learning trauma, is kids who, for a number of reasons, they the learning is just not attuned to their natural ability to be able to learn. And this is also the third level of trauma I call de facto learning disabilities. They're not disabled kids, but they're kids who are growing up in an environment, life of some sort, where, you know, maybe there's there's illness in the home or serious financial problems in the home, or maybe they've, uh, they're adopted 
or, or you know, as a child or foster care, they're in a circumstance where they, they, they're not free to be able to learn well. They're Tsaris on their head. So from the real learning disabled kids to the kids with a Shvachakob, to kids who are living in an environment where they're not able to bring their full mind to be able to learn. In the system we have where the second Omud of our lives is learning Torah, if you can't learn, then you feel worthless. And that's traumatic. I originally was mechadish, these words, learning trauma, some years ago. People thought I was kind of mad. Today, even some of the world experts in trauma are fascinated by the language learning trauma. And they see it's true. Of course it's true. So it's trauma is really the underlying thing that disconnects the kids. Once they disconnect, because they can't be around something that affirms you're worthless, you're nothing, or you're a guy, you're just a horrible person. You can't be around that. So you disconnect. Once you disconnect, there's the internet, there's drugs, there's boys, there's girls, you know, there's movies, there's whatever you want. That's all afterwards. That's not the cause. The real underlying cause clearly is trauma. And that's what Baruch Hashem has taken many, many years. But I think the, the, the world has woken up to that and is be, beginning to see that truth. So I would imagine, well, he, he said a lot right there. Um, you know what, before we go to our next question, can you maybe describe a little bit of what, how do you understand Hatsne Halachas being Tzniyas, modesty? Um, you, you mentioned our way of life and that's, you know, something that people, if they get disconnected, they um, go against. So how, how do you understand what that concept is of Hatsnei Lechas and how they go against it? Hatsnei Lechas is a, is a core Torah value. It's a core, it, it includes not just how you clothe yourself, like for girls, you know, Tzniyas, which they are told about and reinforced from the from the time of their early childhood, constantly being told about, see, don't sit like that, don't put your legs like that, cover this, cover that. They're constantly, you know, it's part of their life. Well, also with boys, when they get older towards, you know, the teenage years with Shmir Senayim and Shmir Seguf, of course, it includes lots of things like walking humbly, being a humble person, like if you if you're if you're wealthy enough to donate a big building, you don't put a twenty foot high neon sign flashing with arrows announcing your name. You put it modestly on the side of the building to encourage other people they should give to. Hatsnei Leches is part of the life of being a Jew, but it's very much to do with how you present yourself to the world, to present yourself in a humble, modest way. The problem with that is. That Well, there's no problem with that. That's Kavaldic. That's the Torah value. It's the way it should be. Ideally, when a, a, a chosn or kala are, are about to get married, we give them kala classes and chosn classes where we include the notions, the ideas around sexuality into, seamlessly, into the beautiful bubble of Hatznei Aleches so that we can support that kind of activity, which we obviously want for our children, we want them to get married and then have babies and have doyas, right? So we include beautifully sexuality seamlessly in a very beautiful Torah way into Hatznei Lechas, and then it works gewaldig. And I've seen many people who are zeicher to that, and it's lovely. What happens with sexual abuse, and it can happen very, very early in life, is that while there's one bubble of Hatznei Lechas, they now have a different bubble of sexuality that doesn't not only doesn't go seamlessly, but utterly contradicts all the values of Hatznei Lechas. And these poor children are completely isolated alone, fully aware of themselves now as being sexual, having private parts. They're fully aware of it. They may... Do you understand? I don't want to go too detailed, but you understand they're fully involved in that world and aware of that world. But not only does it not belong in this world and can't be supported, it's the antithesis of Hatznei Alechas. It's the exact opposite. The message they get all their lives, unfortunately, till treatment, the message they get is because you're sexual, you're bad. You're a bad. We look at you as bad. You're a Russia. There's something evil about you. You're like a guy. You're not even Jewish. It's like awful kind of language that comes across to them, notions and ideas 
That is traumatic. It's not the event, you understand? It's rarely the event that's the trauma. It's the impact upon development, especially sexual development, but personal development where the abuses, it utterly abuses them by segregating them and taking them out of the norms of the Torah world. Does that make sense? Are you getting that? Yeah, and I couldn't be more thankful that I asked this follow-up. That was an incredible response and beautifully articulated. Um, sounds like a lot of wiring takes place that is just yeah. off. And once it happens in one area, then it just spirals. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The wiring issue is huge. And the therapy is often about untangling those wires later on because a kid who's been abused early on oddly enough, tragically enough, often has their self-esteem wire connected to the sexual wire, which is a tragedy for them when they hit puberty. You can imagine, and current runs through it. They be, they feel good because they feel sexual. Well, that's a disaster for a person in our world, an utter disaster. Mm-hmm. And they've done nothing. It's not their fault. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's a complex issue of its own. Right, right. So... If people are missed, you know, they don't have this wiring correctly and they're dealing, unfortunately, with the uh, symptom, not with the cause. What are some of the do's and don't do's that you've learned in your experience? I know that could also be another episode in of its own, but maybe a couple of your uh, top three or so. Each one of your questions is a workshop, like a long <laughs> workshop. OK, so look, a couple of the, the two, the two sort of number one, number two mistakes made in this is when you see a kid struggling, thinking that it's just rebellion or chutzpah. That's the number one mistake. Looking at a kid who's struggling and thinking it's rebellion or chutzpah. And it's utterly not. On the contrary, it's a perfectly aligned traumatic reaction to being in order to be safe. And a Kodesh Baruch put that in a person where they're meant to be safe. And so if you see, if you're out in the woods and you see, you know, God forbid, a wild animal coming at you, you run like crazy. And if you break someone's kalim on the way, who cares? Who cares? It doesn't matter. And if you jump into a canoe that's full of semi-naked people, you jump into the canoe and you save yourself. And then you get off as quickly as you can. You save Kaddish Baruch Hu made us save ourselves from terrifying, frightening, and horrific events so that we will live another day. So to think it's rebellion or chutzpah, that's the number one. Number two is using regular chinuch strategies, the ones brought down in Sfarim. See, I, I, years ago, I, I differentiated by always using the language of regular chinuch and crisis chinuch. They're two different sugyas. And I challenged all speakers that when you're speaking on these subjects, please define what you're talking about. Are you doing crisis, crisis or regular Because they're two different sugyas. Number two mistake in working with struggling kids is using strategies from regular chinuch that work time-honored, der chisol saba, strategies for regular chinuch for a kid who's in crisis, who's experienced trauma, that will be absolutely destructive. So that's what doesn't work. What does work, this has become clear to us, and that's the foundation principle of crisis chinuch as I teach it. The foundation principle is that you actually do regular chinuch to the point where you're always constantly assessing, attuned to your relationship with your child. Because in regular chinuch, when you have to put your kid to bed, or you have to tell them they can't go out, and they get mad with you. You stand your ground gently and firmly, and, and they may, you know, accept it with some frustration or, or anger towards you. But tomorrow morning, they love you, and everything's fine, because they know you were right. In regular chinuch, we can't be afraid of children. We, you know, we stand strong in a gentle, loving, and firm way, while the child maybe gets very mad with us, and maybe acts quite husbandic towards us. But we stand our ground, gently and firmly, and guess what? Tomorrow they love us and they forget about it. They even apologize because they know we were right. That's regular chinuch. Crisis chinuch begins where that ends. 
That means where you realize I'm losing my relationship with my child. Something's happening here. They're running from me. I'm trying to get them to go to shul, and it's actually making them burning mad with me, and I lose them, and they hole up in their bedroom and lock the door on me and won't let me in. They don't come down to the meal anymore. I realize that I'm losing my relationship with my child. That's where you know crisis. That's what, so what works is putting the relationship first. Most people don't discover this till too late because they didn't read the book and they don't realize in advance. So they make all, we all, I did too. We all made the mistakes. And then you have to work your relationship where you put primacy on reconnecting with your child and everything else is secondary. It's all secondary. Primary is your relationship because when you get your relationship back and they mature, then they tend to, not always, but they tend to make good choices about coming back to Shmir's or Mitzvahs because they want to be close to you. If you put the Mitzvahs before, in crisis, if you put the Mitzvahs before the relationship, you lose your kid and you lose the Mitzvahs. It doesn't work. So number one, what works is putting the primacy of the relationship first and then Mitzvahs and ethics and, and all the rest come second. The relationship comes first. So however you, whatever you do in your interaction with them, you always modify what you're doing to make sure that your child feels close to you. The second thing that works is always being patient. Less, you know, there's no rush here. Kids go off rapidly. When they break, they're gone within three months. They go from Beziakov girl to running around with jeans and a tank top in three months. They're gone. Getting them back can take years, seven, 10 years, 15 years. I often say that the real, the real tikkun for most kids won't happen until they're somewhere between 30 and 40 is where it really starts happening. When they've got their own kids, and they're bringing them up, they begin to understand life better, where the final healing happens. They may come back to Shemir Zamitzvahs early on or to be, you know, ethics and derecherets in their 20s. But the real healing doesn't happen till later. So be patient. See the big picture. And, and if you do, if you are patient, see the big picture. Chances are you're going to see a different picture. And that's where the nachas is going to emerge. Let go of nachas. Let, let it go and, and work on your relationship. And everything else should unfold. Is this where the whole terminology of unconditional love was, you know, kind of came about? Um, Unconditional love is a weird thing because that was used in regular chinuch. And personally, I think it was a mistake. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, Spock and the early thinkers, they thought it was going to work. And actually, kids desperately need structure, rules, and discipline. You know, I, I used to say rules, structure, and discipline, but I changed it. It's really structure, rules, and discipline. All kids need that. And so unconditional love doesn't make sense in regular chinuch. You know, the regular chinuch for midara daras was always meted out, shall we say, or the hadracha of it was by withdrawing love and showing disappointment, frustration. You withdrew love, show frustration, and kids like straightened out. Well, in regular chinuch, that more or less works for most kids. Probably still does for, for some of the kids. In crisis chinuch, it's a disaster. So many parents say to me, so why should we do it? You're right. If you if you don't need to do it, then then don't do it. You know, don't do the 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 withdrawing of love at all. I personally think, but 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 this is my point. Just showing love on its own, without structure, without rules and discipline, it doesn't help kids grow up. It's actually pretty crazy. What I'm teaching all the time is that as we do the structure and we do the rules and we do the discipline in this day and age. How on earth does it harm a kid if I do the structure, the rules, and the discipline, which need to be done in a loving way? How on earth could that possibly be bad? So that's not unconditional love, but in a certain way it is. I show love at all times, but that doesn't mean to say I don't do rules and the structure as needed. Of course you do. And of course you do the discipline. Love and limits. Love and limits, exactly. Right. Absolutely. So you referenced your book uh, once or twice, and now is a perfect time uh, to dive deep. Uh, so you wrote this book. It's a su- subsequently won the Benjamin Franklin Award. Um, I presume that's a secular award, which yes, it uh, is amazing, shocking, which speaks volumes um, to how the book is being so well received. Um, can you share with us what made you want to write this book? 
Well, well, I tell you the truth is, first of all, let's be you know very frank. Uh, I didn't write the book. I rewrote the book. I edited the book three times. But a dear friend today and, and uh, an author, Zalman Goldstein, came to me and offered to write the book. I didn't have time. I tell you the truth. I had no idea how to find the time in my life. But many, many people had asked me, how come you're not writing a book with all your ideas and thoughts? And the answer was, I just don't have time. I'm too busy. It, it takes tremendous effort and thought to write a book well. So Zalman came along and offered to write the book. And I loved his ruach and spirit. And he resonated to me. He'd been using my ideas with his own family. He'd gone through a divorce and he had some struggling kids and he'd used my ideas and found they were working and he was just amazed about them. So he came and offered to do it. And I just loved him as a person. I thought he was smart. And he wrote the book um, and, and allowed me He's so humble. He allowed me three times to like edit it cover to cover, you know, to make sure it was my voice and my feelings. But it was a completely different. It was a game changer. If I just had to edit and the raw material was done, it was there. He spent a year doing it. Um, so together we created this book. And it was to my great surprise, it won this award, a silver award. It was in the three finalists in the uh, field of psychology. It was amazing, shocking to me. It may even win a gold. We'll find out in May. We don't know. But uh, just to be in the finalists was uh, was pretty shocking. The book was about life. You know, I, I witnessed and have watched for so many years the outside world breaking family values. They would like nothing better than destroying the nuclear family. And you see there's an enormous liberal movement in the world, in the Western secular world, to destroy the family. Well, we can't be naive. These things affect us. The outside world always affects us. The walls of the shtetl are long down. As I say in the uh, my introduction to the book, today's Haskalah is the internet, is is YouTube, is, is social media. That is today's Haskalah. Kids who are not satisfied, who are not happy, who are not steiging and feeling fulfilled in our world, will look outside easily and quickly, unstoppably, of the outside world. You cannot stop it. And in doing so, I feel that family is very, very threatened. The reality is I have experienced that directly, obviously, in my work, how families are struggling so deeply with their kids, where problems seem to be everywhere. You know, it's the rare family today that doesn't have anyone, any child with a problem. You know, it's all over the place. So the thought, the thinking behind the book was to write, a, we, we came up with the title eventually, Zaman and I, Raising a Loving Family, because really that's what we wanted. If we can raise a loving family where children feel loved and accepted, again, with structure and discipline, but loved and accepted, we can create that environment. Chances are very high they'll want to continue our Masoda. They'll want to continue our way of life. So to me, it seemed one of the greatest ways to help create you know, the the ongoing resilience of our community and life was giving the insight how to create a loving family based on, you know, my experience and work and research over 30 years. So Raising a Loving Family is the name of the book. By the way, where can yeah. people, where, where can we purchase the book? So Jewish bookstores will have it or you can get it on Amazon. On Amazon, okay. And nothing like a good teaser. Can you share with us a highlight of the book? Well, the book goes through, remember, the book is about regular chinuch, first of all. It, it, it describes, you know, the book was written, in my mind, when I wrote the book, and I told Zalman, when you're writing, this is what I want you to think. We're thinking about this book being given by everyone to newlyweds. Give them the book when they get married. Give them two copies, one for husband and one for wife. And let them both read it and study it together. You know, the idea was give them the information. I've heard from so, so many people who've come to therapy or come to workshops afterwards when they've already seen the problems and they lament deeply. How did I not know this when I first got married? Why did no one tell me this information? So I took the information that I've been teaching and, and sharing over the last 20 years, probably I've been speaking publicly 25 years we took all that information and tried to, you know, sort of put it into a book in a way that was good for men and women. And when I say that, I mean it 
quite honestly, women read books like this. Did you see the book? Hey, look, here's the book. Yeah. You can see the book, right? It's a book. The cover appeals to women. Men don't pick it. Women will pick this up. But the insights have to appeal to men. And I was quite mukbit that every page has to have a chiddush. If, if you don't do that, men won't read it. Ruba de Ruba, most men just can't. But every page, literally, of the book has a chiddush somewhere, something interesting, something novel that you probably not heard before. It's, it's, it became a profound read. People, the feedback I'm getting from people is quite astonishing. I mean, I heard Rebbe's who are giving it all their chassidim and telling them all to read it. it it's remarkable. So, so regular chinuch, creating resilience in our children, helping people learn about this wonderful word, attachment, how to create attachment, which is connection. And I teach that, you know, for years and years I've been teaching it, but I wanted that to be brought out in the firm world. I made a decision about five years ago to talk about it as much as possible. Today, everyone's talking about attachment. It's amazing. I want to talk about the role of marriage, of working on your marriage. What is your marriage for? How do you develop your marriage? Like, what is it for? What's the gift of marriage? And how do you make your marriage something that's so profound? Your children will want to be close to you. They'll feel loved and cared for. They'll want to emulate you and go in your ways. Well, that's the role of marriage. I wanted to, I put a section there on, we call it the world of emotions, but it's really about trauma. There's so much trauma in the from world. We have 200 years, 2,000 years of trauma. Wikipedia lists, interestingly, I think about 465 expulsions of the Jewish people from Yetzirah Mitzrayim and on. I think it's about 460 from countries and cities, expulsions. We've been expelled and destroyed and, and, and killed all over the centuries. Then the Holocaust in our time. We have a lot of trauma in us still from the Holocaust. That's going to take generations to go out. Then you've got the sexual trauma and the learning trauma. There's a lot of trauma out there. So I put a section on trauma so that people could understand what trauma is, identify it themselves, and then seek ways or understand what are the options and ways to get it treated. I actually gave that section to a friend and colleague, probably one of the senior people in the world of understanding trauma in the secular world from the universities, Dr. Stephen Porges, who I became very friendly with. And he did me the great honor, which is pretty amazing, of editing and reviewing that chapter on trauma to make sure it was right. And I'm so grateful to him for doing it. So there's a section on trauma. And the final end of the book really is about what do you do when it goes wrong? Because it will for many people, despite the best efforts, you know, it goes wrong. So how do you understand the underpinnings, the broad conceptual underpinnings of crisis, not specifics, because that's unique to every child and every family, but the broad conceptual philosophical underpinnings of crisis are laid out in the final chapters of the book. So it gives you the whole family life from beginning to end, how to do it right, how to build your marriage, how to attend to your trauma, and then, you know, build attachments and resilience and what to do if it goes wrong. Wow. Um, everyone should go buy it right now. We'll finish listening to the episode and then go buy it. But um, my um, my question is that we've spent so much time talking about from the parents to children, but what if someone finds themselves a child of, you know, not the most optimal upbringing? What should the child do? The adult child of uh, childhood abuse. Like I did a whole podcast on this one time on the Coach Menachem show about, um, mm. uh, about emotional neglect. Mm-hmm. You know, adult children suffering with it. Look, the answer is when you recognize that you're hurting people you love and you can't seem to stop doing it, chances are you're suffering with trauma. You're self-protecting. You're not a bad person, but you're protecting yourself because you need to save yourself. That's what trauma does. It disconnects you. It makes you essentially self-centered, as you should be, in order to protect yourself. So if you recognize you're hurting, consistently hurting people you love, well, go get help. You know, all there's so many amazing therapists today. I mean, it's just remarkable what's happened in these last 30 years from the very beginnings. Like I said, when I think I was the first and only full-time therapist in Lakewood, take Lakewood or any from community, 
Baruch Hashem, there are marvelous, marvelous, very, very well-trained therapists. And today, you know, we've made that transition where working on trauma is now understood to be mainstream, that there's so much trauma in our community. So if you're an adult survivor, an adult survivor of childhood trauma, emotional neglect, emotional abuse, go get help. There are lovely, wonderful people that are ready to help you today who have real skills and real knowledge. And the one of the indicating factors are when they're hurting someone that they really know they should. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. When you hurt consistently hurt people you love. And you can't you know you're doing it and you can't really stop. You know, how many times can you justify it's all their fault? How many times? Till you realize it's probably not. And even if it is. I should be dealing with it in a kinder way. When you recognize you consistently hurt people you love, chances are you're dealing with trauma. You can say it's not just a cause, an anger issue. It's a little more than that. I want to tell you something. I asked my Rebbe one time, Matzio Schlitter, I asked him if he'd ever met like a Baltaiva, a Balgaiva, someone who the Midda has bilus over the mensch. Mm-hmm. For a while, he said, no, I don't think so. It was amazing, shocking. We're all listen. All men, all emotional problems, all trauma and emotional problems manifest through midas ros. That's not their shirish. That's not where they start. As a matter of fact, one time I went to a barn lab. Say sadim kodesh lebracha. I used to go to him a lot to speak over shilas with him. One time I asked a shila Tim about how do you know if it's midas ros. Like, how do you know if they're suffering emotion? Two bachim don't get up for shachus. They stay in bed. One's accused of being lazy. Is the other lazy too? Is that what they are? How do I know which is which? Maybe one of them is struggling with trauma. Maybe one has OCD. Maybe one has severe anxiety disorder and can't get out of bed. And the other one's a lazy guy. And needs Like, how do you know which is which? So the sheep asked me, so what difference? I said, it's huge. Because if he's, if he's got midasros, He's lazy, he needs Musa. But if he's got Chole Nefesh, he needs Tipu Rufu'i. We've got to be Marapa. We've got to treat him. So she was like, well, so do both. I said, Chas V'Shalom. If you do both, so if you do mid, if you do Musa to someone who's got, if you do rather Tipu Rufu'i to someone who's got, got Midas Ras, so nothing happens. But if you do Musa with someone who's got Chole Nefesh, you're a Mazik. Mm-hmm. Shiva laughed and he thought for a minute and then he said to me that unless you know for sure in today's day and age he told me you always have to assume, assume it's Chayla Nefesh first and treat it if after you've treated it you and your colleagues are convinced that all treatment possible was done then he said you should consider it Midas Ros Chayla Nefesh will exploit Midas Ros in how it manifests, how it expresses itself. But it's not the Shoyrish. And giving Musa won't help. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> That's all I could say. Yeah. Yeah, wow. It's pretty amazing. Wow. Um, our final question, and you've been so generous with your time, but um, many say that today's educational system, our Chinuch system, is being challenged today more than ever. Uh, can you share your thoughts on that? And what about, you know, what about it makes you proud? What about it concerns you? Well, I mean, the chinuch, we have a fantastic chinuch system. That's, uh, the, the truth is people say that it's challenged more than ever. They're probably right. The fact is we've had unprecedented growth without real chance for town planning. It's not like we sat back and looked and knew what was coming. It just happened. The growth has been exponential. And with that growth, there's sort of a desperation to keep up providing enough seats and enough schools in that process. You know, bigger classes, less attention to individuals. You know, there's a process of adjustment to this new world that's going to take time. So the challenges are enormous. In addition to that, the exposure to the outside world puts children under much more challenge than they ever had before. It's like their their attraction to the outside world and their exposure to it they bring in with them into the Chinook system, knowledge and ideas. Many, there's always a kid in the class and they share it with others. It's very hard to stop it. It's very hard to shelter everyone like we once could. 
And on top of that, parents, it seems to me, the financial responsibilities of life have become mad. Whether that's a whole social issue of itself, whether we've just priced ourselves out of the world by raising standards of life and standards of living where two parents have to work. But the the end result is the parents are tremendously, in most most cases, financially overwhelmed, which means two parents have to work, which means the concept of stay-at-home mothers has gone. There's no mother generally at home waiting to greet the kids when they come back with milk and cookies when they come home from school. And so that's rarer and rarer. So with all these kind of issues, I think the Chinuch system is facing unprecedented challenges with the both the chayma of the child that's coming in and the ability to deal with them. You know, when they start struggling or they're challenged and they're exposed to the world, it's, to the outside world, it's really, really difficult for the system. What, what makes me so proud of it is the fact that the mechanchim and mechanchas, today's mechanchim and mechanchas, extraordinary people. They're utterly moist and nefesh. They're incredible people. They've chosen a career and a lifestyle that they know very well going in, they're going to live in relative poverty, most of them. And they've chosen this for us, for our kids, for the future of Klaalisol. I mean, the mechanchim and mechanchas, Rebbe, the top rung of Klaalisol. They're the best of the best of the best. And I'll tell you something else that makes me feel very proud and positive is the willingness of Moistus all over the world. I mean, I am invited to Moistus around the world frequently to be, you know, guide them and help them make certain changes that need to happen. And they are so open-minded. It's remarkable. I mean, I can't, it, it's amazing how open-minded to the word change. They want to make changes, not just, you know, do the same old, but really look at their schools, look at their systems and ask, how can we make effective changes to deliver the product better? And they're willing to use that word change and and look at how to make changes. It's amazing. Amazing. What concerns me is really one issue. How quickly will the Chinuch system realize that we have to adapt to the new world reality? And in the new world reality of children, most children will not deal well with the old angry, withdraw the love and show the angry face as you're doing the rules and the discipline in school. It doesn't work anymore. It just creates rebellion and chutzpah. That what, what concerns me is how quickly will the system change where throughout the world will learn the skills, and they're not that complicated, of how to do rules and discipline, firm rules and discipline, with a smile on your face, with love, with kindness. That's, the, that's what concerns me. Will we get it quick enough? Because when we do it that way, when we do rules and discipline, firm, clear rules and discipline, with kindness and love, the kids kind of shrug their shoulders, and they go along with us. And when we do it with the withdrawing the love and showing the angry face, they say, goodbye, I'm done. You hate me. Yeah, they don't see it the way we did, you know, years ago that you deserve the discipline. Today they see it as you don't love me, so then I don't love you. That's what Mori Varevi Mashkir, he taught me this early on when he said, at one of the conferences I ran, he said in a drasha, I have it on tape, and I'm sure he said other places too. He said, there's no such thing as dropouts. He said, they're all pushouts. Powerful. And it was a powerful and profound statement, which really helped govern my life because I saw it that way too. And I heard it from him without, you know, he, he said it, he just felt that way. Wow. Rabbi Russell, this was incredible. Um, I'm very honored. I know how many requests you get to so many p- different podcasts out there. Uh, everyone's today, um, you know, running a podcast. So I know that coming on here was, uh, is something unique, a, pri- a privilege for us. And we thank you very much. Everyone go get it. Amazon books or any Jewish bookstore, raising a loving family by Rabbi Zalman Goldstein and Shimon Russell. And uh, only continued bracha and hatzlacha, success and blessing for all the amazing work that you're doing. It's an honor to have you on our show. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And keep up your good work, too. Thank you. Thank you. To listen to all Kolot episodes and see upcoming guests, visit kolopodcast.com. 
We are also on all podcast players. Type in Colote on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, and Amazon. Share with your friends and please make sure to give us a five-star review. Colote is a project of the Columbus Community Kolel, a full-time Jewish learning center in Bexley, staffed with high-caliber Torah scholars. Ever since 1995, boys, girls, men and women from all backgrounds and affiliations have found many opportunities to connect with Torah and mitzvahs at the Kolel. Whether it's a study partner, engaging lesson, or a program, the Kolel is your one-stop shop for all your Jewish learning. If you want to know how you can benefit from the Kolel, visit thekolel.org. That is T-H-E-K-O-L-L-E-L dot org and forever be inspired.